Welcome to Trailblazing with Corbett Price, where we present new and fresh perspectives that challenge how you approach change to solve some of the biggest challenges faced by business and government leaders today. Here's our host, Andy Corbett, to introduce the fourth episode in our series on organisational health. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our podcast series on organisational health and the seven dimensions of wellness. My name is Andy Corbett, and I am the Managing Director of Corbett Price. So let's recap. What have we achieved so far in this series to date? Well, we've spoken to several uh, trailblazers on various topics, uh, one of which was the organisational operating environment. We also spoke about the how to apply agile enterprise principles and help organizations become more resilient and nimble for the future. And finally, we also spoke about the uh, financial and performance health of an organization and how that can impact their ability to make informed decisions. So today we will be covering the fourth dimension of organizational health, that is the uh, employee experience, engagement, performance and satisfaction so absolutely fundamental component of organizational health I'm sure you'll all agree and I think if you look to all the different dimensions that we have this is probably the most critical one uh, to get to get right and is one of the one of the uh, main challenges that organizations face today both far and wide across the globe. I actually uh, recently facilitated some roundtables at the Public Sector Network's HR Innovation Showcase on this very topic. We spoke with uh, several public sector leaders from across three different jurisdictions to get their views on the great attrition and identify ways to look within to elevate their workforce and reduce those, uh, those attrition rates. And the biggest takeaway that I had from those conversations was really the clear, strong correlation between employee experience and attrition rates. And I guess it goes without saying, really, you know, if the happier your employee is in their role and what they do on a day-to-day basis, the more likely they are to stay within the organization. And uh, if we go back to sort of the theory around employee experience and just sort of honing in quickly on the definition, the definition really is the journey an employee takes with your organization. So that journey includes every interaction that happens along the employee life cycle, plus the experiences that involve an employee's role, workspace, manager, and well-being these are all critical touch points that an employee has to really inform and form what exactly their experience will be and over the past few years we've experienced a great deal of uncertainty with of course the global pandemic the pandemic itself has led to new ways of working new, new, different ways of thinking and approaching what we do Um, and obviously we've had hybrid and remote working arrangements we've got increases in in internal mobility to fill short and long-term talent gaps 
there's lots of things going on. There's lots of things that have happened over the years. And I think really it's led many people to question what does a good employee experience look like? And, and how do we create an engaged and resilient workforce? Well, luckily, we have Roger Watson joining us today to help navigate these questions and provide some fresh perspectives on what we can do to address the employee experience challenge. Roger is the founding course director of the Master of Creative Intelligence and Strategic Innovation at the University of Technology in Sydney. Roger has an impressive academic and practice background in psychology and criminology and his work on designing for the common good approach to multi-stakeholder collaboration received many industry awards and that includes multiple Good Design Australia awards as well. And in recent years, Roger has contributed to government strategy and policy on numerous topics and his work at UTS has been underpinned by a methodology developed under industry conditions, community engagement, and academic rigor since 2010. So, Roger, thank you very much for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Good, good. All right. Well, let's get straight into it then, Roger, shall we? So um, you've done a lot of work in the uh, in the design thinking space. Uh, and I guess that work in itself is really around um, addressing complex, dynamic and networked societal challenges. Um, how do you define design thinking? And can you provide us with an example of how you've used this to address and solve a significant societal challenge. Yeah, sure. The, the popular term design thinking dates back from about 2008 in a Harvard Business Review article by the IDEO CEO, Tim Brown. Um, so in that paper, Tim outlined their approach, the IDEO approach, as one of taking a business problem, finding inspiration from the real world, uh, ideating an intervention and implementing. So that design thinking approach is one that many people are familiar with, and it really comes from a product design background. It's been really influential, and it's been particularly useful as a way of bringing together teams to look at issues they're facing in a collaborative and generative way. At about the same time that this article was published, uh, the New South Wales Department of Attorney General and Justice, where I was working at the time, put out a, a tender they put out a tender to all of the universities in New South Wales to establish a designing out crime research center. Um, and the, that tender was really about looking at the uh, products such as lighting and, and consumer products through a lens of how to make those products less conducive to crime or how to make environments uh, less conducive to crime. Now, interestingly, um, at about the same time, my now uh, long-time collaborator, Professor Case Dorst, had recently arrived in Australia, and he led the University of Technology Sydney um, response to that tender, where he proposed taking an approach of exploring how design as a way of thinking could be used. So rather than looking at physical products as a um, and how they could be tweaked or, or used to reduce crime, he would put forward a proposal to let's look at design as a way of thinking and explore how that could be uh, used in order to take on complex societal issues. So 
his his work really um, is underpinned by research into how top creatives take on problems and he spent some time at IDEO and so there's a, a I guess a shared uh, delta of, of knowledge there but what Case found um, in his research is that how you frame the problem it really determines how it can be approached so when I joined the Designing Out Crime Research Centre at the University of Technology Sydney as a criminologist as you mentioned before um, I found a team of people with design architecture history computer science and psychology backgrounds. And we, in working with CASE, um, we worked together um, not just to simply apply a design thinking approach to crime issues, but to build on CASE's in, insights around framing. Um, and we developed a custom-made approach to taking on complex societal issues. So some of those, um, the under, underpinning assumptions behind that work or that the issues that we face um, are becoming more open, uh, so difficult to define or to land on a single frame that people can agree upon. Uh, these issues are becoming more complex, so not just complicated where you can break the issue down and, and understand the, the individual components of it, but complex in that there's multiple factors that, that are interrelated uh, and can't really be pinned down through an analytical approach. These problems are also more networked. There's multiple problem holders or stakeholders who are interested in, in the area and they're dynamic. So they're in a constant state of change. I know this is a long definition of design thinking, but uh, it, it's it's worth um, for those who have done, you know, the Stanford D School course or the IDEO course, it's worth just me um, articulating how our approach is a little different to that. So we worked together on many projects with police, uh, justice in communities um, to develop and refine our approach to framing and reframing complex societal issues. And these projects would often show an alternative approach to the issue our partners were facing. So it'd, it'd, it'd um, present an alternative way of them looking at things. Um, many of those projects led to products, uh, services, strategies, policy innovations. And although I've worked on a bunch of programs that I can't talk about, um, one that was done in an academic environment and is a really clear example of this notion of framing and reframing, um, and probably one of our, our biggest impact uh, projects was a, a, some work we did with the New South Wales government and the city of Sydney. And that work was looking at um, King's Cross and the, the crime that was happening in King's Cross in 2008 um, through to 2013. So back then, King's Cross was the, I guess, you know, if you look at the crime statistics, the biggest hotspot of assault. Um, and um, I, I coming, having come from the Department of Justice, had been using criminology and, and working with um, other government stakeholders like Premier and Cabinet and police to, to really optimise how we could uh, respond to it. So we're bringing in initiatives like, uh, you know, no alcohol served in glass after 12 at night um, uh, and things like that. Things that were really having no, no impact at all on the, the crime rate. At the same time as that was happening, the designing out crime people were, were getting out there into the community and getting an understanding of why people were going out into King's Cross and what value they were looking to, um, to experience there. And so through the process of um, frame creation, the the problem of 
alcohol-related violence in King's Cross was reframed to one of what if we treated King's Cross as if it was a music festival and then brought in the principles of event organisation to uh, to take on that issue. Um, what resulted were you know, some immediate things like you know, crowd control, uh, portable urinals, managed taxi stands, uh, a take care space for people to go and uh, chill out and get some water or you know get arrange a, a ride home um, so really practical things that that were implemented but that reframing so reframing it from oh, what if we look instead of treating this as a crime problem what if we treated it as a, a music festival then opened up the context for city of sydney to think more broadly um, so they brought in business they brought in community into the discussion uh, it empowered them to establish a nighttime economy team which then uh, enabled them to create the open sydney strategy which in turn then led to a global movement uh, called global cities after dark so in in 40 odd cities around the world we now have uh, mayors of the night all taking on this um, approach of looking at the the nighttime not as a crime problem but as an economic development opportunity uh, so now in new south wales we have a 24 hour economy strategy and the new state government commitment to reinvigorate live music and late night culture so yeah hopefully that gives a bit of an idea of our take on design thinking um, and how we've applied it yeah thanks roger so i've just got a few questions around that frame creation that you that you yes. um that you just mentioned there so it sounds similar to sort of analogous thinking where you're sort of using analogies or something similar to sort of help uh help people think outside of the existing problems to then come up with more creative solutions to that problem um is how did you how did you sort of arrive at the music festival as as something as part of that reframing yeah great question so it, it's not uh, so yes analogous or metaphorical thinking absolutely but it's got to come from somewhere and it's got to come from a, a deep understanding of the situation and a genuine uh, understanding of the situation so as i mentioned um the the UTS designers went out and, and did ethnographic research in, in the field. Um, we did a whole bunch of like stakeholder interviews. We did a whole bunch of uh, user interviews. And then we brought that back into a, a place where we um, analyzed that data um, and drew out a number of themes. So the, uh, a few of the themes were um, identity forming um, and vibrancy. And so then um, if, if identity forming and vibrancy are shared values amongst the stakeholder group, including the young people going out, we then ask a question around, well, where does identity forming and vibrancy occur? And that could be in the natural world or it could be, you know, in, in the, the business world. And one answer to that is um, music festivals. So. People go to music festivals because of the vibrancy. They go there as um, an identity-forming experience. It's part of growing up. It's a, a, a cultural, um, a cultural experience. And and so, in this stage of framing, there's not one particular right answer. Like you could play around with those values and come up with different answers to that. But what um, what what uh, we put forward is that. A frame becomes fruitful if it then gives you a whole bunch of ideas that start to make sense when you overlay it on the original problem context. Yeah. 
Excellent. Thanks, Roger. And I guess another question that springs to mind there is in a world where everybody wants every, everything done immediately and, and, you know, within a matter of days or they just want solutions to a problem straight away, uh, design thinking in itself is something that requires patience. It requires a lot of thought to really sort of understand the problem in detail. How, how do you sort of manage the, any kind of pushback you might have from the people that you engage with um, who, who may not necessarily have the patience for a design thinking approach? Yeah, I guess a, a lack of patience um, leads to a lack of impact. Um, and yeah, been in plenty of um, situations where immediate results are needed. Um, now it might be that you know in initial in an initial workshop with you know some staff and you know maybe some um, some stakeholders as well. It may be that within a couple of hours there is a fruitful frame and some ideas that that can be implemented more or less straight away, um, which is great. But if you're wanting to really shift um, a, a big problem, then uh, you're going to need a bit more than that. And I like to think of portfolios and, and drawing from the business world, drawing from innovation literature, building portfolios of, of innovation. Um, and a, a good portfolio might exist um, where, you know, 70% of your work, uh, of your innovation effort is aimed at just shifting what you're already doing. So that, that's where, you know, getting a couple of people in with frontline experience and policy experience um, and really thinking about it and identifying some quick wins, um, that, can, that can be useful. But then if you're thinking about um, uh, adjacent innovation where you might be wanting to borrow from uh, how someone else is doing, uh, taking on an issue or more towards the radical end of the spectrum where you're rethinking you, the value that you're wanting to achieve, you're rethinking how you're going to achieve that and rethinking what those actions are going to be, then that takes a, a bit more time and, a, a, and it really de-risks the portfolio to take that time. Um, jumping into radical action uh, without the, the, the thought behind it um, is incredibly risky. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I completely on board with you there. And you know, it just it, it, in some cases, you'll you'll always have a situation where people, regardless, will want to solve things quickly, and not give it the time that it deserves. But you know, as you can, as the, the majority, you know, ideally, you want that uh, that time and headspace to to think things through and and to actually really address those risks and realize the full potential of uh, of of the solutions that you uh, that you put in place. And um, you mentioned you mentioned you know uh, shift and in, in, in terms of addressing major problem. I guess you know bringing it back to the the um, the sort of one of the key uh, one of the key areas and and subject matters of this particular podcast in terms of em employee attrition. That's that's certainly that's certainly a a big problem that's. Uh, that's keeping executives up at night, not just uh, not just in Australia, but on a on a global basis. Um, in fact, the, the the Australian Public Service consensus recently found that a third of APS employees were unhappy with their working conditions, and and seventy percent wanted to leave within the next two years. It sounds like the approach that you take to design thinking is, is one which could really help address this challenge and uh, and help to improve 
the employee experience. Could you could you just provide some further detail on how the design thinking approach could uh, could help solve this big problem? Yeah, sure. I, I'm just recently back from a conference in Budapest, the International Research Society of Public Sector Management, and this was a real topic of conversation, uh, not just in the the sessions, but um, uh, you know, around the coffee table. So it's a huge issue and not just in Australia and it really needs a reframe. So having been a public servant myself and having worked with the APS and other governments um, in Australia and, and internationally, there's a couple of issues that come to mind. Um, so if you're in the APS, for example, um, or any public service really, then you've probably got a reasonably good education. Uh, you've also made a decision to dedicate your career to the public good. Um, as a citizen of the world, you're probably aware of the many crises that we're facing as a global community, whether they're the existential crises of climate change or you know, societal transitions like the aging population, uh, maybe local transitions like a, a region moving from being a community where coal has been a big part of the um, economy. And now as a region, maybe you're looking to transition into renewable energy or exporting uh, um, green powered advanced manufacturing. So like if you're a public servant who's aware of all this, you can probably see the many links between these issues. So when you show up to work in your team, which exists within an organization unit, um, within an agency or department uh, and in a specific jurisdiction, and you're compelled to think and act just within your specific portfolio, just within the mandate of your team, and perhaps you're actively discouraged from even thinking outside of that, then there's no surprise that you might feel a bit unhappy. Um, so taking a, a bit of a historical lens to how we organize our um, public services, we've basically borrowed hierarchy from the military. So a lot of uh, public service organizations have a command and control culture and a hierarchy that perpetuates that. Um, and command and control is fine if your mission is clear and if you've got the resources needed to accomplish the mission. The thing is command and control isn't up to scratch in a complex situation. So, you know, one might even come to the conclusion that business as usual is actually killing us. Um, if, if we look at the, the climate crisis, um, it's our business as usual across the last 150 years has got us to where we are now. So we really need to rethink how we organize ourselves. In fact, the, the military have, uh, again, way ahead of us on this, you know, they've, they've moved away from command and control um, in certain circumstances. There's a, a great book called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. Um, and we use that a lot on our master's program here at UTS. So um, it, it's called team of teams. And it's the notion that um, if you establish multifunctional teams, so with different expertise from different areas of the organization and empower them with uh, decision-making um, in order to get achieve their mission, then you're gonna get much more adaptive um, outcomes or much more adaptive um, ways of working and you'll get to the outcome in a in a more predictable or well, less predictable way but more predictably you will achieve the outcome whereas a command control approach really assumes that you can understand the the problem and then organize your resources around that um, sort of a waterfall or you know prince um, uh, uh, approach um, whereas team of teams is a much more designerly approach and so drawing on um, on that kind of vibe um, 
We, we do need top-down as well as bottom-up innovation. Uh, we need to allow and encourage people to think broadly. Um, and of course, sure, act locally within your portfolio, but to, to think broadly uh, in day-to-day. -day. Also, establishing a culture of collaboration. So putting in place structures that encourage and facilitate thinking across business units and across departments, across jurisdictions. You know, this is stuff that we would do at Designing Out Crime all the, all the time. We'd have convening power where we could bring together um, uh, community, uh, non-government, uh, private sector, government um, agencies, and really spend time getting to understand an issue and at the end of the day or you know the end of the process all of those people going back to their organizations with a, a bit of a clearer understanding of what they could do so uh, note there the nuance around a diff the difference between command and control like if you were going to put together a, a policy um, to mandate private sector non-government community to do something you've got a really fat chance of of that working um whereas if you can convene people around an issue and them come up with the ideas that they could do within their sphere of influence then you you're really headed towards collective impact where you you haven't even had to really pick up the policy pen or if you are picking up the policy pen it's based on the insights that you've gained from that process um so I, I, I think as well that that probably requires uh, a capability, like a, a different capability to what the public service necessarily has. And we've seen over the the last uh, decade or, or more in housing of designerly capabilities, whether it's co-design or service design or human-centered design. But I, I think there's something to be said for that multi-stakeholder um, convening and facilitation as well. Um, Ultimately, I think, um, you know, when you're talking about capability, a, a two-day workshop on design thinking gives you little more than awareness. Uh, designers study for four years before they're a designer. So we need to be a bit realistic about that as well. Um, you know, it's something to be built over time. But ultimately, it's about, um, you know, if, if we can um, help people to bring their whole self into their work, and if we can help our public servants to see their fingerprints on initiatives, then they're going to feel more motivated. Uh, they're going to feel more valued um, and they're going to be less likely to want to leave their organisation. Absolutely. And it, so just going back to your point there about the, the team of teams, uh, you know, there's, there's a few examples of in the APS. I think there's, there's, more, there's more that could be done there. But I guess one of the more recent examples is how team of teams have been applied in a time of crisis and i think covid kind of showed how we can apply the sort of whole of government type perspective to to deliver on a, on a mission and, and apply that team of teams approach um so yeah it shows it can it can be done i mean have you, have you seen any particularly good examples of it being applied in public sector across uh, other jurisdictions or from your experience? Yeah, um, look, I'll pick you up on the first comment first. Um, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the multidisciplinary teams that pulled together around COVID are an excellent example of that way of working. And COVID was a very fast moving, um, very abrupt crisis. Uh, what we also need to do is 
be able to um, acknowledge the slow moving crises that we're facing. Um, you know, we've got a great opportunity coming up with the the voice um, and uh, Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, um, was talking the other day, talking about how all of these initiatives uh, that have been put into place over the years that have been really positive uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, um, you know, great, but the issue is still getting worse. Like things aren't getting better, things are getting worse. So we need to take that crisis mentality into issues uh, like closing the gap, like our response to climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, COVID was a, a great example of something with um, really um, tight feedback loops where, you know, every day we could see the figures on infections, the figures on hospitalizations, the figures on death. Um, we, we need to have that urgency and we need to build those feedback loops um, around these other issues in a way that um, creates, I guess, the, the urgency that, that uh, these issues such as the gap and such as climate change deserve. Um, if I think back to my own work and where I've seen this happen, um, that was the, you know, that kind of collaboration was the sole mandate of the Designing Art Crime Research Centre. Like we were mandated to build a new way of taking on complex societal issues. And uh, from you know, the design uh, sphere, we drew on um, things like co-design um, to bring people together uh, around an issue. Um, in my own practice uh, as a consultant, um, there's uh, stuff I've done in Canberra and stuff I've done in New, New South Wales that I'm, I, I can't talk to. Um, but in the academic sense, you know, the, and um, that's the other thing about the conference I went to in, in Budapest, the um, International Research Society of Public Sector Management. There was a design stream there where we've got this whole new generation of designers who are, are building careers working in and with public services. And they, they just weren't there 10 years ago. Um, you know, there, there was, a, I guess, a, an immaturity um, in the field of design in being able to work with public service. And also uh, the public service didn't really know how to work with design. But I think we, you know, over, over time we've, on both sides, public service and um, in design, you know, we're building that deeper capability uh, and deeper understanding across the, the, the context space of public service and the disciplinary of design. So I'm, I'm heartened by that. That's great, thank you, Roger. Yeah, that's good. So there's obviously it can be done. There's lots of good examples of it. And um, yeah, and we can really sort of see the power of, uh, of applying that team of teams approach in terms of the impact that it has, but especially on really uh, improving the employee experience, thus having a, a positive impact on, uh, on employee attrition as, as well. And my, my next question is related to internal mobility. And and LinkedIn's 2023 workplace learning report states that creating an engaged and resilient workforce is shaped through career development and internal mobility. Uh, and reading the report, it also mentions that uh, employees who have, have made an internal move at the two-year mark are 75% more likely to, to stay with their company than employees who haven't. So my question really is, how can mobility be crafted into the employee experience and life cycle successfully? 
Yeah, prob- I've probably got two answers to this. So, like, firstly, mobility is an essential part of resilience. You know, you, the experience you build from moving around and uh, from getting those different experiences um, really adds to your own resilience as a, a practitioner, but also adds to the broader public service. But the downside of that is if it if it happens too quickly, you know, the experience you gain is just a little bit too superficial. Um, it also can lead to a lack of continuity. Um, you know, as we've talked about, some of the things I work on take you know two, three, five years to achieve. So if I'm dealing with a, a churning team, then the impact and the insights then just not going to take hold. Um, so that's the downside of it. But the the upside is uh, really big, um, and I think if we can approach this strategically, then I think there's a, a lot to be gained. So I'll, I'll bring in a, a little academic model here just to facilitate the conversation a bit. Um, if we look at a, a public servant uh, as an individual who is developing their practice, then this is a, a model that we've been developing called the practices model. So you can look at a practice as a bundle of actions, so things that a practitioner does or um, or a thing that a public servant um, uh, realises in the lived world. Um, we can then look at methods, so how do we go about developing that action? We can then look at principles, so um, what are the working principles that we use to uh, develop those methods that lead to that action and values and these values aren't i guess the things that you would read in a mission statement they're more the values that are experienced in the li- lived world so a resident of a, a care home um, might experience care in many different ways so values principles methods actions for quite different things and I think if we're looking at mobility, this is a, a place where the public service really has a strong opportunity. So internal mobility within and across service um, public service agencies has been a thing. I, I benefited from it a lot when I was a public service servant, uh, moving from frontline, uh, working with victims of crime through to um, policy um, roles. Um, and the thing uh, in, in my experience was that it was all around the same topic area. It was all crime related. So what I experienced was I, I saw many different actions that our organization was taking uh, around crime. I saw many different methods and, and, and principles. I saw, in fact, saw many very different disciplines. So working with psychologists, working with social workers, working with um, uh law or you know legal practitioners and myself as a criminologist each of us were working to shared values but we had different principles different ways of 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 working and very different methods that led to very different actions but collectively um, as a, a public service through that that bundle of practice we were contributing to a portfolio of of interventions um, so I think um, I think the opportunity around mobility, if it's about rounding out individuals um, as public servants, if it's about exposing them to many different actions, you know, so what is the public service doing? Mm. Many different methods. How is the public service doing it? Many different principles of working and many and, and 
ultimately probably just a few values that the public service is working to, then you're really going to build out um, a workforce that is um, uh, T-shaped, I guess, you know, broad experience um, and uh, with with some disciplinary uh, expertise. And I think also building a network of trusted colleagues through that journey um, and and a career tra trajectory, I guess, that grows public servants um, with that broad bundle of practices who can not only think strategically, but can draw on their experience across those many, uh, many opportunities. Now that, that I guess is um, my experience within one government agency, but I've seen that um, happen across agencies as well. And I, I think it leads to um, leaders who who are then able to communicate in the different languages that departments have um, in order to be able to better um, you know, negotiate or better collaborate towards a shared outcome. And and it, I guess it sort of leads to what you were talking about before with team of teams. I think if you're if you're mobile across agencies and you you're you're uh, opening yourself up to different perspectives on things and experiences. Do you think that's uh, almost a catalyst in a way to to really uh, help promote that team of teams approach? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, team of teams requires uh, that you have an understanding at least about what the other members of your team, um, what their expertise is. And so, yeah, you know, I mentioned right at the beginning of our talk that when I landed at Designing Out Crime, I landed there as a criminologist and I joined a team with product designers, architects, historian, computer scientists, um, and I had no idea what those disciplines were. Uh, so, you know, landing there in a leadership role, um, yeah, I could have micromanaged, I guess, but I didn't know how to micromanage those disciplines. So um, being open to these different discipline areas and being open to forming a shared way of working was how I got through that and and not only got through it, but as a team, we built a, a new way of working together. So I think having that openness and having that um having that opportunity to experience the different discipline areas and, and I guess the, the humility to um, understand that even if you're coming into a, a, an agency as an economist or, you know, in, in my experience as a criminologist, um, the different disciplinary lenses all bring different value to a situation and being able to create, um, uh, create a situation where those different disciplines can work together means that you're going to have something that's you know, stronger than the, the sum of the parts. Excellent. Thanks, Roger. And I guess, you know, for, for the listener as well, I mean, there's, there's some excellent and, and very useful information here. Um, now, you know, there might be a person who's thinking, okay, well, this is all sounds great. And how can I, how can I get started? You know, how do I, I'm in my team, I'm in my agency, how can I actually apply some of these concepts to, to what I do in my role to really, uh, to really get to achieve the, the outcomes, some of the, some of the outcomes that you've mentioned here today. So I guess, what would your, what would your sort of key recommendations be for individuals or organizations when uh, approaching a known problem with a different approach or, or trying to leverage uh, design thinking uh, in, in, in the roles that they perform today? Yeah. So firstly, there's some pitfalls. Uh, be 
be very wary of off-the-shelf applications. Uh, we we developed and experimented with our approach six years before we were confident enough to put uh, our book, Designing for the Common Good, on the shelf, um, and then another two years to develop it into the Graduate Certificate of Public Sector Innovation, and then another three years to develop into the Master of Creative Intelligence and Strategic Innovation. So just be just be wary of taking things off the shelf, um, or or if you do take it off the shelf, approach it with um, with a, a, a an open mind, I guess, and I'll, I'll put a bit of a definition around open mind. So one of the theorists that um, has been influential uh, to me, but also to the field of d design is John Dewey. Um, any listeners who've worked in education will probably be familiar with John Dewey. Um, he was um, very influential in education reform in the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He was also part of the American pragmatist movement um, with Charles Sanders Peirce, the logician, and uh, James uh, William James, brother of Henry James. So William James, father of modern psychology, Charles Sanders Peirce, um, a logician. But um, so they they each had their own discipline area. But as a, a trio, they forged this um, notion of American pragmatism, and. Uh, so open mind, John Dewey uh, wrote How We Think, and he has a few principles around uh, guiding how we think. So if you're picking something up off the shelf around design thinking or you know, designly ways of, of doing things, there's just a few things to keep in mind that won't necessarily be written into it. Um, firstly, make assumptions. Yes, make assumptions, but hold on to them lightly um, and build a way of testing your assumptions. So if, if, you're, um, if you've got a, a brief uh, that you've been given at work to work on, uh, you might take a bit of time to consider, well, what's the frame that uh, this brief is coming from? Um, how, how tightly held is that frame? Is it the right frame? Um, and then you might think, well, what could we do? Um, and come up with a, a few ideas and then find a way of testing those ideas uh, quickly without you know too much expenditure you know e even just testing them um hypothetically uh you know um building a prototype of of the idea and and see how it'll work the the biggest um the biggest fails that i've seen in public service is when uh, a policy is rolled out based on a whole bunch of assumptions that have never been tested um, and then you know things are implemented um, and we wonder why they didn't work one of the best examples of how uh, this uh, didn't happen was in a, a, a legal um, or a, a law initiative in new south wales um, so a bunch of assumptions were made around this program dealing with um, potential um, offenders. And those assumptions were then questioned every month in the rollout of the program. And those assumptions were then, uh, the, the program was then refined around those assumptions. And then the, uh, over a couple of years, the program got to a point where it didn't need any more refining. And so it got rolled out. Now that flies in the face of, of normal um, or normal practice as it was back then. Like normally you would come up with your initiative, uh, you would roll it out, you might have a control site, you wouldn't touch your intervention because that would 
contaminate the the data and then after two years you'd evaluate and find find that it didn't work now of course it's not going to work you know, if you're just implementing something with no feedback loops with no refining you you're destined to failure so I guess that the, the principles of John Dewey, um, hold on to your assumptions lightly, test your assumptions, change your initiative based on those new assumptions and repeat and repeat and repeat. That it, that it, I think um, that and the, the art of reframing were the biggest learnings for me back when I started in this work. Um, and hopefully that's useful for your listeners. That's great. Thanks so much, Roger. Really appreciate uh, what you've uh, spoken about today. Uh, I've learned an awful lot from from uh, from this conversation. So thank you very much for your perspectives on this this dimension of organisational health, the occupational dimension, all about the employee experience. Um, so if you'd like to read more and uh, and also the uh, articles that Rogers co-authored on creative intelligence and designing for the common good please visit our website. We've got Roger's bio uploaded on there and there's lots of links and further information that you can access. Uh, So once again, thank you very much, Roger, for today. Thanks very much, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for anyone interested, uh, we, we do have a new book out called Creative Reboot, Catalyzing Creative Intelligence. Uh, with my co-authors, Barbara Doran and Diana Vo. Also has a bunch of case studies uh, written by participants on our master's program of how they've picked up this way of working and applied it into their professional life. So thanks again, Andy. It's been a real pleasure. Well, that was really good. I'm, I'm sure you'll all agree that was extremely insightful. So to really uh, make sure you didn't miss anything, that the transcripts of today's episode is available to download from our website, website address being www.corbettprice.com.au forward slash podcast. That's www.corbettprice.com.au forward slash podcast. We will also include any references to the materials mentioned today during the conversation um, such as that book on team of teams of course uh, and anything else which is uh, relevant to give you as much information as possible please tune in next week as we talk with sherry canning from luminate leadership on our fifth dimension which is the relational and workplace culture thank you for tuning in goodbye